Hello and welcome to Young Confused and Well Read, a podcast about growing up, finding your own path and maneuvering the ups and downs of life. This podcast episode is a deeper dive into the cultural industry and the impact it has on us. Because it is such a broad topic, I choose to focus on feminist theory and also capitalism as both of these fields are in my bigger interest. And I think if you have been listening to this podcast before, you also know that these are both topics that I have touched on before. I have opened up conversations, so I thought it was really on point to integrate them into this episode as well. Again, if you have been listening before, you might feel like this episode sounds a little bit different than usual. This is because this is a deeper researched episode on the topic of cultural industry, as the title already suggests, under the influence. So how the culture well, industry is basically influencing us and impacting our day-to-day -day life. And because it is more researched and I'm backing up basically what I'm saying with theory and data, um, it might sound a little bit different because it's not as chatty as per usual, but I still hope that you're going to enjoy this style of episode because it was really fun producing all of this and I hope you appreciate it for what it is. Like I was saying, it took me a little bit longer as well because I had to do my research, I had to find information, I had to structure it all. Usually um, the podcast episode doesn't take me as long as this one, so if you're enjoying it, please let me know. So um, yeah, I can do something like this maybe a little bit more often. I was planning to maybe do one once a month. If that is not too much for me, I actually need to see... But yeah, if you're enjoying, it would mean the world to me if you give this, you know, episode or like the podcast in general a positive feedback or review or just let me know. You can find all of my information as well as all the additional information of like further reading and text I'm referring to in this episode in the show notes if you are interested to, you know, dive deeper yourself into the topic. So yeah, let me know what you think and... I hope you're gonna have a lot of fun listening. I hope it's gonna be really interesting. And with that, let's dive deep on cultural industry and how it influences us. So why should we actually be interested in understanding cultural influences and actually becoming more aware about the extent that cultural actually influence or beliefs and or entire being? I think it is quite broadly understood that depending on where you live in the world, you are developing differently because you are under different cultural influences. The influences in India, cultural-wise, are different than the cultural influences in Italy, for example. So someone who's growing up in Italy is going to develop differently than someone who is, you know, living in India. This has nothing to do with, you know, 
undeveloped and developed countries. This is not the conversation. This is just about culture because culture also, you know, has an impact on our belief system. But that doesn't mean that any culture is worth more or worth less than another culture because um, some, you know, cultural beliefs can overlap, yes, but just because they're different doesn't mean that something is worth less. I'm just trying to mention this here. There is maybe this belief that is spread that, you know, some cultures, you know, are more developed, but that honestly is just bullshit. And I'm going to basically kind of, I think, explain why that doesn't really make that much sense. But let's just say that overall that the culture we, you know, grow up with is having a certain impact on our beings and on our belief system and this influence that this culture has often goes unnoticed and that is why we need to talk about it because we often don't even think about how this culture has influenced our entire belief system let me give you an example if you're watching a TV show that has been produced in the country that you are from and that you have lived in maybe all your life, then you usually kind of notice your day-to-day -day habits or like practices or things you already are familiar with in these shows. Obviously, depending on where the show is from, if the show was produced in your country, but it was produced like 20 years ago, then obviously things will have been different. But if the show is relatively new, then you might notice that the characters in there speak, you know, similarly to you or that they, you know, wear similar clothes. You can maybe see them using, you know, the same phone that you have, stuff like that. And you don't really, you know, think about it. But once you maybe start watching a TV show from another country, you will start noticing different things. For example, you watch a TV show from your country and the characters have, you know, the same breakfast as you do, which is maybe quite a popular thing in your country. But then you watch a show from another country and they're having total different foods, you know, in the show because the food culture in that country is simply different. And that is something, you know, where we actually start to notice, okay, depending on where you live, things are different and different things are seen as normal. For example, a very popular breakfast food in Great Britain would probably be would probably be baked beans and toast and maybe eggs. And then a popular breakfast food in maybe France would be croissant. Um, that is obviously very generalized. I know that people in like France and Great Britain do not necessarily just eat that for breakfast, but just an example. And in Germany, maybe it's bread. And there we can see that that already differs. And different things are seen as normal breakfast foods. But you never question that normality. Um, and you just take it for what it is because this is what you are familiar with and this is what you know. What happens now and what happens now in a more rapidly globalized world and environment we stay in is that we get more of a chance to start noticing the difference of different cultural influences 
one hand is that in a more globalized world we interact more with people from other places and we can start to see how their culture differs from our culture but we are also you know have the availability to consume media from different places what has been growing in popularity over you know i would say the last decade maybe or like at least the last few years is that you know uh basically really westernized and let's say hollywood based film industry is shifting a little bit more with streaming platforms like for example netflix hulu disney plus um what else is there amazon prime and so on and so forth basically also you know making shows and films available from non-westernized countries which would be for example that you can watch spanish or argentinian tv shows or you know just general from other places that aren't like maybe american or british which i think are at least in film like the predominant um you know movies most people watch especially like hollywood film is like i think the biggest you know industry like american you know america in general you know has the biggest impact or like the biggest cultural influence worldwide and i'm gonna expand on that later on but this also you know makes it more available to us to actually see different cultures and also for cultures to overlap more because we do not simply consume media solely produced in our countries obviously some people do um, because there are still countries in this world where the media system is obviously um, limited and where it's controlled what people can see and where people don't have access to globalized content i am really aware of this but if you're listening to this podcast episode it's likely that you are able to listen or to you know watch content from different places all over the world because otherwise you wouldn't be able to access this (laughs) um but i think what I'm trying to outline here is that because in like a rapidly changing environment and you know we need to bring our intention to think more about the cultural goods that we consume that have an influence on us on our being our behaviors and our beliefs so before we move on let's actually define cultural goods because sometimes i feel like we are using these terms and then you might be like wait what exactly is that so cultural goods are goods and services that are part of a culture and this can include arts so for example performing arts which would be something you could watch in a theater visual arts but also things like architecture i think everybody who's um really into architecture um will know that you know different buildings look different depending on where you are in the world like one big example would be churches they can look really different but also just you know the style of houses can already look different like a typical 
British house looks different than a typical German house, you know what I'm saying? So that is also something that belongs or like is a cultural good, which I think is quite interesting to think about because we would maybe not even think about that, you know, the house that you live in right now is actually part of a cultural good, but yeah, it is. Then also heritage conservations. So these are things as galleries, museums, and libraries. And then also part of a cultural good is what we are, or like what I'm focusing on today, which is the cultural industry. This can include written media, which could be books, broadcasting, film and recording, but also, you know, radio, but it can also include festivals and music. As globalization already outlines, the cultural industry is changing with time. It has been changing and it will be changing forthgoing. And not only in the type of content that we consume, as for example, with platforms like Instagram and TikTok evolving over time, but also in the availability of that content. Because way, way, way back in the day, to watch a film, you would have to go to the cinema. Or then, with, you know, TV becoming a thing and way more popular, you had to often, you know, wait for a specific time to watch a certain program, show, or film. And now, with streaming platforms, you can basically watch any type of content anytime you want and it's on demand whenever you want it and you basically have the chance now to constantly access media as long as you have like your phone or your tablet um, with you and that basically shows how the cultural industry with time is able to gain more control over our life because if something is always so available to you and you can consume it even more, it is, I think, no secret that people are using media more and more and are spending more times, you know, in the world wide web or even also just like watching TV shows or stuff like that. And with that, the influence, the cultural goods that we consume have on us is also rising. What needs to be, I think, explained here is that the content that we consume always hold a certain ideology in them and will always send a certain message that supports a certain ideology, usually, especially in a Western-dominated world, sending, you know, messages of pro-capitalistic content and how that is done, I'm gonna explain basically now. But before that, just to make sure we're all on the same page, a quick definition of the word ideology. It comes from the Greek and is a mix of the words idea and ology. Ology is standing for the study of something, so ideology basically is the study of ideas and concepts and like the outlooks of the world. So basically the study 
of concepts that make up our world. And studying this is important because through studying ideology, we learn how society works. So ideology in a society is functioning in a specific way. So there is a pattern that is put on us and we then in turn reproduce it and by reproducing it we will put it on other and then they will reproduce it and so on and so forth. So this is a cycle. So an example of that would be is that we learn to give someone the hand when we say hello and by then actually you know repeating that practice other people are repeating the practice as well like this movement of giving someone the hand and we just keep doing it this way. Obviously these practices can change. Now in our society we are not, you know, walking up to a friend and giving them a handshake but we might just wave at them or maybe give them a hug. Um, So these things can change but um, they are just an example of practices and how they can be reproduced. Now, usually you wouldn't really question this practice because it seems so normal, but social experiments have shown why we should actually question these practices because they, first of all, show how, you know, humans are actually adapting to the habits without questioning them and how that can actually be dangerous. You know, past events have actually, I think, outlined pretty well. But just a fun social experiment, um, you can look them up on YouTube if you would be interested, is for example that, you know, people are like entering an elevator and usually you would stand there facing the front of the elevator, so the door where you walk out. But then people, for example, turned their back to the door and were standing like this and they were let in on the social experiment and then people who weren't were walking in the elevator and what, you know, they noticed there were that these people were turning around as well basically conforming with the practice of the people in the elevator and that very little people actually start questioning these people in the elevator of what was going on and other experiments even show that once all the actors that were like led on to you know for example standing with your back to the elevator were gone the people who were actually just adapting to this practice and weren't like actually like sure why they were doing it still kept doing it and they weren't turning back to the front they were still standing with their back to the door even when nobody was for example there so that is very interesting and also something I think that is interesting to think about For this, we're gonna travel a little bit back in time to the 1930s and to the scholars of the Frankfurt School, which has been or have been basically scholars who's been studying society, um, you know, in the time during, you know, both big world wars. And they were studying the cultural industry and basically established the term cultural industry. And they used it as a synonym to describe mass culture. This term was raised by Horkheimer and Adorno, which are two scholars of the Frankfurt School, but they are 
way more like the name suggests they were based in Germany and yeah they were basically kind of you know paving the floor for social theory and basically also media theory because they focused you know back in the day there wasn't media as in the form that it is now but um there was media um which was predominantly film and radio and they basically said that you know film and radio part of the cultural industry which once again they used as a synonym to describe a mass culture and they argued that this mass culture produced you know masses instead of individuals so that everything was uniform so that the content slash film or radio that this cultural industry puts out was not meant to you know encourage people to you know find their individual self and develop themselves and you know be who they want to be but rather produce a uniform you know society with people sharing all the same beliefs and this content basically encourages this kind of ideology and this ideology it was built on was capitalism so then all of the cultural goods reproduced the idea of capitalism and supported that system and by consumers basically watching this content they would you know base their own habits and desires on what they see so depending on you know what they see they would then um you know form different beliefs let me make this a little bit clearer with the example of the screen so the screen could be you know your tv screen your phone screen um you know the cinema screen whatever and the screen is a tool that allows us to show something and to see that something in turn. So the screen makes something visible to us. But by making us see something, they also will always hide other things. So you can, for example, see a film and that there's basically the finished product, but you don't see the production process. So you don't see you know, the microphone that is recording the audio, you don't see the editing process. Obviously, there are, like, for example, sometimes, you know, making offs film to film that make you look behind the scenes, but by just watching the film, you will not see all of these things. But otherwise, by, you know, showing us something, you are also always not showing us another thing. And that is not always in turn of, you know, the production process of the film, but also in the way of what kind of story you're telling us. If you're making a film about, you know, two characters, like two main characters, and you focus on their storyline, you're, for example, not showing us the storyline of any other character featured on that film, like side characters, for example. Um, and that is also what you need to think about when you consume film, is they are showing us something, they are telling us a story, but they are telling us a story from a certain point of view, 
And depending on what the point of view is, another point of view will always be erased completely out of the picture. So by thinking about that and thinking, okay, we are watching films that are produced under capitalistic circumstances and a capitalistic system that are producing capitalistic ideologies, so capitalistic ideas, then that is the narrative that we are seeing. But we're not seeing a narrative that, for example, is produced in a different environment or shares other ideas that are maybe not pro, but maybe even anti-capitalistic. Now, cinema emerged from the historic practice of shop windows, which is actually kind of funny. So the practice of shop windows is for us to display something so we can look at it and then see what they have to offer. This is, I think, also how advertisement work and why advertisement is, you know, such a big deal in the film industry. But that is once again basically just interesting to know how film always has been produced to show us something and to promote us something that we should want to have. So that is what films tend to show us is a pro-capitalistic ideology instead of an ideology that maybe is standing themselves against it. Towards the end of the episode, I will always, you know, feature films that are basically putting themselves against these ideologies. But for now, let's stay here and keep on. The Frankfurt School called this, you know, the uniforming um, through mass product, um, the formula. And they also established the idea of the vanishing point, which I was referring to at the start, which is that something becomes so normalized that it becomes unseen. So we are so used to this content and the messages they are sending because it's been, you know, part of our culture all our lives that we don't even start questioning or thinking about the message or the underlying message they are sending and are just, you know, taking it in and just accepting it as given. Um, I think it's no secret that we are affected by media and we have always been and that, you know, human are naturally, you know, you are able to influence human beings, that is a given. And media obviously is using this, otherwise there would be no advertisement ever sent on TV because it would have no influence if people weren't, you know, basically influential or you weren't able to influence people into buying certain products. Now, how film is also, you know, doing this or has been doing this, especially in times of the Frankfurt School, is that, you know, with Hollywood cinema becoming way more popular, um, which is really interesting, is that in these films, the people, you know, acted and talked in a certain way and what could then be basically seen was that, you know, people who watched these films, like even for example, like in Germany, then started talking and acting like the characters they seen on screen themselves so that they were adapting these habits. Film actually is, you know, supposed to mimic real life, but you know, make it maybe more exciting. But what was happening then in turn 
was that, you know, real life people were mimicking what they were seeing on screen, putting it into their reality because they basically wanted to become a part of what they've seen on screen. They wanted to be like these people and like these very, you know, high-held Hollywood stars. I think, once again, like the Hollywood aesthetics are something that people, you know, have heard of, usually have very good-looking, um, very aesthetic, let me say, actors who are like really pretty and people, you know, have the desire to be like them and then, you know, start dressing in the same way or, and also start acting in the same way, which is something that back then, as well as, you know, in our day-to-day -day society, like right now, can be seen. So this is basically showing how so much we are doing is filtered through the cultural industry. Marcel Mauss actually argues that cinema to a large extent used to and still does bring over practices from Hollywood cinema and that was basically what you know I was just outlining that was like basically his argument and I think it's really interesting to think about it so maybe you right now want to think about you know if that ever happened to you that you started you know maybe dressing in a certain way because a character you really liked in a show was dressing it or maybe even started adapting a hobby like I for myself for example know there was like a um, tv show um, for children when I was younger and it was about a little monkey and he played violin and I thought that was so cool um, that I wanted to play violin itself and that's how I started playing violin. It sounds like a very sweet story and obviously there's nothing necessarily wrong with it but I never actually like you know question my desire to play violin even though I was influenced by something that I've seen on screen. Obviously now like I was saying with advertisement how people are using it the whole concept of influencers that is evolving now that basically their job is to influence you into buying certain products which is basically their job um, is so so interesting. I think everybody who is listening right now can think of at least one example where they maybe bought a product because it was something that they saw promoted online or maybe like something similar like with my starting to play violin story um, but yeah we start often especially in films idealize the characters we see and then want to be like them and then adapting these habits into our real life so this is just once again me trying to tell you how much influence media can actually hold and how little we actually think about it and then in turn think we made this decision on our own yes but to what extent was it actually influenced by the media and I think more than not you're going to start noticing that your decisions have been influenced by an external environment which once again is natural because we can't cut ourselves off of external you know influences but then think does the media maybe even have more influence on you than people you personally know in your day-to-day -day life like 
you might go and buy a product because a friend recommended it to you and they said it was really good, but you know that person and you trust that person and you know that they wouldn't recommend you something that actually, you know, they wouldn't really think you like or they wouldn't think, you know, they wouldn't like themselves. But then you also start putting so much more trust into people you don't know um, may that be influencers online or even just characters on a tv show and you know then you start drinking diet coke because you saw someone else drinking diet coke maybe share in clueless i think personally clueless is a very great movie to analyze um so much that is going to be mentioned in this episode but this is not a film analysis class but a general dive on the cultural industry the Frankfurt School basically had like this very like big thing with capitalism. So they basically said, you know, because we function in a capitalistic ideology, all of the products that are produced within these ideologies um, reproduce their ideas. And the whole point of Hollywood cinema basically is to promote capitalism and make it stay in place and power. And I think this is also something to think about. Now, I don't care where you stand politically or if you're pro-capitalism, if you're anti-capitalism. I am not here to, you know, force any political or ideological opinion on you. This is, again, theory that you can disagree with. Uh, please keep that in mind um, that, you know, it's theory. It's not a given fact, you know? like capitalism good, communism bad, or the other way around. But I just want you to start think that because obviously we live and function in a capitalistic world, then obviously media is, you know, far-reaching reproducing this, that maybe you start thinking that the system is actually good because that is what you've come to know um, and that is what, you know, has been told to you your entire life and so the only thing that I would encourage you to do is to maybe look outside from what you know and start seeking other theories that doesn't mean that you align with these theories or you will agree or that these theories are actually right once again doesn't have to be the case but I just think it is very important that we look outside our bubble and also start listening to people who have other things to say. You might think that communism is a horrible idea and the theory sucks. That is absolutely okay. But have you actually, you know, ever really engaged with the idea of, like, for example, communism is just an example. And I'm not pro-communism, I'm just trying to say. Um, but I do think it is very beneficial to actually then learn about it and then think, okay, do I actually agree or do I not? Instead of always just taking things as a given, as someone tells you, you know, that is actually a good thing, and then you just go like, okay, yeah, but then question it, because, you know, you can maybe find yourself in thinking, okay, yeah, I always thought capitalism was the best system, because that is what I've been told, but are there different, you know, approaches, and do I actually end up agreeing? If you end up agreeing, that's absolutely cool, maybe you don't, um, but that's also what I like to do when there's some even when there's someone I think I'm disagreeing with, I always try to honestly listen to what they have to say 
and question them on it and then try to understand their standpoint because their standpoint might be really valid. It might not necessarily align with my values, but I think this is very important as I think a lot of problems in our world are stemming from people just sticking so badly to their belief system that has been formed and that they can't, you know, really step out of it. And like, once again, you might engage with other things and then just feel like the belief system you had from the start just was the right one. But you might also change your mind about some things and I might change my mind about some things in the future. Basically, just my reminder to you to keep learning, to keep questioning and to keep asking. Now, I basically want to do a little case study to once again outline for you how media interferes with our perception and the world's perception. And the example I'm using here is the view on women on TV and how that, you know, basically was formed through media in general. If you are more familiar with feminist film theory, which I absolutely understand most people probably want, you will have heard of Laura Mulvey, who is a very, you know, famous film scholar, famous feminist film scholar, who basically led film theory in the 1970s to adapt to a more feminist point of view. Now, if you don't study film, you also won't know this, but there's a difference between film and television scholars. So there's people who study film, which are, you know, what you basically go to the cinema to, to watch, and then also TV, so television, so what you basically watch at home, because it's different, because, you know, the um, circumstances basically under which you consume that content um, matter. So watching a film in a movie theater is different than from watching a film, you know, in your home. So there's a difference. So um, Mulvey is a film scholar and her feminist theory was based on film. There's also um, television, like feminist television theory that is a bit different and people might also argue that you know Mulvey is a bit outdated because she came up with this theory in the 70s but I do think we can still to a certain extent apply it and it was a very important stepping stone for um, feminist film and the emergence of it and also, another thing I want you to know is that feminist theory in general, but also feminist film theory, often used to fail to basically contain an intersectional point of view, so to also include black women talking about film theory, and that is obviously very problematic. Um, and I just want to point that out here, that feminist film theory is not always as inclusive as it should have been or as it could have been but there has been a rise of more intersectional theory as is in most probably fields in that study but yeah with all of these disclaimers let's move on what Mulvey actually said so she was basically talking about how film is you know, generating a certain kind of pleasure, you know, the pleasure of viewing something. 
and that analyzing this pleasure destroys it. And this is exactly what needs to be done because we need to challenge this form of pleasure. So basically kind of what I was already saying is to not just consume the content and take everything, you know, that it is for, you know, just take it in and not question it, but to actually, you know, take another step and actually be like, wait a minute, hold on. What is this actually telling me? And should I actually agree? Or is there something, you know, I need to think about and challenge maybe even so one form of this pleasure she like is called or she basically called scopophilia which is very big word which basically isn't you know a big word but there isn't too much complicated consent behind it it is the pleasure of looking and the pleasure of being looked at which Mulvey also described looked at Ness so referring that back to women and back in the day women in Hollywood movies who have basically in every single of these films objectified so they have, are passive females who are just there to basically not bring the plot forward but to be like a supporting role for the male and to be looked at basically so if you for example ever watched a film with maybe a Marilyn Monroe or you watch such an old film, you gonna notice how women are portrayed in these films as an object and as something, you know, that is looked at from the male gaze. So for example, there are shots of like seeing women's legs and like seeing her body before you even see her face and the very big empathy of, you know, looking at the woman body and you can really clearly see how that is from a male point of view. Uh, so everybody who ever argued that you cannot tell if a woman or a man directed a film, I doubt you, but um, it's very interesting to see that and to basically see how women in these films were just used to be an object to the male gaze and to be looked at. And what was basically then told to the female viewer was, first of all, you should enjoy this as well, like you should enjoy the male gaze and you should adapt to it. And then second of all, also how um, they basically should enjoy being looked at. So that, you know, being objectified, they should be thankful for and they should enjoy. Um, and how this narrative was for, like basically forced on us. And I think it's very interesting to think about, um, you know, the need for feminist th film theory and the need of feminism in general is because this, once again, with all the examples that I was bringing forward, this was what people were watching. And this is the narrative that got, you know, projected on them. So male viewers then saw the female objectified and then they kind of internalized it because they didn't, you know, question it. And then the female viewers were also told, you know, this is, you know, how men are going to look at me and I just basically have to endure it. So that is the narrative that was told through that film. And therefore, we need to think about um, how women were portrayed on screen and how that, you know, took further influence on the society, you know, society influences film, but film also influences society. It's like, vice versa process. Linda Williams, who is also a feminist film scholar, also basically focused her studies on the way women's body were portrayed on screen. 
and she also basically showed or like outlines how we can still see this in Hollywood action films today so it isn't something that you know just stopped happening after you know um movie study was out or something yes you know but like if you ever watch an action film you will notice that you know any kind of you know female action heroes are usually dressed in like very um ways that are promoting this being looked at ness and are also you know you know guys aren't dressed or portrayed the way a woman in an action film is i think that is very clear so this basically once again showed that even though Mulvey's argumentation is from the 70s and things have changed, that doesn't mean that, you know, you can't apply it. Because like I was saying, with the action films, you can still find it in, you know, our cinema today. But also, after this feminist film movement in the 70s, we have also entered a post-sexist and a post-feminist era in Hollywood film and Hollywood cinema, which has come to be known as rom-coms. And I think this is very interesting because when I first learned about this, this um, I was like so awoken. I was like, oh my god, now so many things are making sense. So again, rom-coms is cinema that is post-sexist but also post-feminist. So what we have there is that we usually have a female lead that is often starting off as independent and quite successful. But there are two things that these characters always strive for, which first of all is making more money. So capitalism and capitalism ideologies, you know, making more money to buy fancier clothes and then on the other hand making a man fall in love with them that is usually the story of all of these um vice versa like the first example i actually have is devil wears prada where you know she isn't actually you know making a man fall in love with him she has that relationship before but that is where you know the promotion of capitalism ideologies especially with the fashion industry and we also have, I think, one of my favorite rom-com films, Confessions of a Shopaholic, which is, I feel like, the best example for this. So it's once again promotes capitalistic ideologies. She is a shopaholic. She spends all her money on all of these fancy clothes and fashion items she thinks she needs. But then on the other hand, her like goal is to fall, you know, basically not like a goal but like you know this love storyline and her falling in love with this guy and I honestly I love this movie but I think it's interesting to think about it then we have sex in the city which I think is also the perfect example for that and a film that I think is also very interesting to analyze this um, and that made me really like real is just like heaven I think it's not the most known 2000 or like not even 2000 rom-com or rom-com but it's with Reese Witherspoon and the Hulk actor who's sadly I name always forget. A Mark Ruffalo? Oh god, I'm so sorry. I, I actually know him from 30 going on 13. No, 13 going on 30, which is another rom-com, you know. Basically also perfectly outlined this, but just like Heaven, if you haven't watched it, it's about this doctor and she's very successful and she falls into a coma and 
her ghost basically still is in her apartment but uh, because she's been in a coma um, it's basically getting sold or rented to this guy played by Mark Ruffalo and he's the only one who can see her and what I think is very interesting in this film is that you know even though the character Reese Witherspoon is portraying is so successful like in her job in her career like she's literally a doctor she's saving lives every single day people in like her private life is viewing her are like viewing her as less valid because she's not in a relationship um when Mark Ruffalo's character goes around you know asking her friends and family you know for you know who she is actually doing a little bit of research they're all like uh wait you're her boyfriend like we didn't think she has a boyfriend basically viewing her as worth less because she's not in a relationship no matter what she actually is achieving in her life which is literally being an absolute girl boss sorry for bringing that term in and um saving lives which i think is very interesting and what i noticed in there was that i had this idea that i wasn't worthy if i'm not in a relationship and I've learned in that moment when I've learned about this, that this was actually not an internal belief, like coming from within me, but something that these films has put on me. Because every single one of these films is basically telling you over and over and over again that no matter how successful you are in your life and in your career, if you don't have a man in it, you're not worthy and you're not viewed as worthy and I thought that was very very interesting. Once again I think a film that is very cool to watch to like also see all of these concepts once again reproduced is Clueless. Clueless is actually a critique on the capitalistic society um, if you know a little bit more about the film. Um, so I've actually just learned that people don't know what Clueless is and I was like wait you don't um because for me it's like one of the most famous it's not 2000s like from the 90s but a very famous like teenage film rom-com that I thought people have heard of but if you don't know what it's about it's basically about these very rich teenagers in Hollywood Beverly Hills or wherever it takes and they're so snuck up and um yeah the main character is called Cher and she, you know, has it all, and she's very far away from reality, and it's actually such a good film. It's come to be really known for, you know, the fashion in it as well, um, but she, you know, she's very, you know, far away from reality. She has, like, a lot of money spending it on clothes, and, like, all her worries are usually so, so seem really insignificant, but to her, they are a big deal. There's, for example, one of these scenes, which I think really well outlines that it is a critique of you know, capitalistic society and their practices in Hollywood cinema as well, is where, um, I don't recall 100%, but, um, there's been, like, maybe an earthquake or something, and so many people, you know, lost everything in their houses, and Cher then, you know, starts participating in the charity, you know, collecting things to give to the victims of this earthquake, um, because, you know, they lost everything, and she's, you know, running around her house collecting things and she's taking the skis and her father then goes, why are you taking the skis? And she just goes, some people lost, you know, everything. Don't you think that includes Winter and Leisure? And her father just looks at her and is like, I don't think, you know, that look basically said, okay, she's, she's so far off because obviously people lost all their belongings. The last thing they would probably worry about is losing their Winter and Leisure but she, you know, she was trying to do a good deed, but then 
being very far away from reality. So this is the kind of narrative the movie has on you. If you already watched the film, you're probably like boring, but just think it is very much, you know, a good film to watch critically and also just a film to watch for fun. I really do enjoy it. So um, just because once again, you need to be a little bit more critical about what you consume doesn't mean that you can't enjoy these films because like I was saying Confession of the Shopaholics is probably one of my favorite rom-coms of all time um and like you can still enjoy it for what it is even being critical in my opinion uh another film that is also a little bit more um yeah recent or like was published recently um, is The Holiday with Emma Roberts so once again if you're thinking oh yeah maybe like the Devils Wear Prada and Sex in the City and all of that, you know, that was early 2000s change as well. Nope. The Holidays, is it The Holidays or is it The Holy Date? Now I'm confused, but it's a film with Emma Roberts, I think it's on Netflix, where she basically, you know, makes this deal with the guy to bring to any kind of holidays with her family so they would leave her alone. And that is once again, the example of, you know, she isn't worthy or she isn't seen as worthy because she's not in a relationship and people are bugging her about it and doesn't mean what she does career-wise or, like, for herself. Or if she's actually happy, because usually, you know, females who are single on in these rom-coms are portrayed as being so unhappy. Like, I think... I have never watched it, so I can't say, but, like, Britta Jones is probably the best example for that. You know, that they're just portrayed as miserable beings but as soon as they find love they find happiness or something and I do think so if you're like there's a follow-up film for the holiday um that is I think about the parents of her and that is basically you know what comes after the you know happily ever after and I think this is a bit more critical in showing you that not everything just goes well and amazing once you're in a relationship but I haven't watched this and I'm just referring to the holiday on their own because it is you know a film that you can just watch on their own so in case you know that other film is you know clearing up some things this is like once again me not hating or anything but just bringing the intention attention to these and how so many ideas are subconsciously implanted into our head another thing just because we're speaking about feminist theory at this point i think is also very interesting which i'm once again so bad but i will hopefully link it in the show notes is um, this theory, I think you might have heard of even if you're not super duper big on film theory or studying film or anything, is this theory of thinking if a film is actually feminist um, or also not, you know, post-feminist, um, post-sexist or even just sexist, is, you know, are there more than one it's like this test you can do and it's like are there more than one um female cast members who interact with each other and who have a conversation on their own and that this conversation isn't about men or I think it was even like making money but mostly about a man I thought that was really funny because if you actually do this test with most of these rom-coms most of these fail and once again I've never watched Sex in the City but um my film professor actually used that as an example and he said that this show failed this test and even if you haven't never watched Sex in the City, it's about fe like four female friends and I think, again I haven't watched it, but I think it's basically just all about them, like they interact with each other 
all the time. And I think it's crazy that the whole show with a female dominant cast is failing them having a conversation about something that isn't about another man or, you know, consumerism. So the whole show is basically just about shopping and guys. So really, really interesting. And once again, just another example to think about how the content we consume and the content that we are able to consume and we're watching is influencing our ideas in so many different directions. Now, most of these films, or basically all of these films I'm referring to, are predominantly belonging to Hollywood cinema. Once again, me being a little bit annoying of a film student here, but um, what film scholars are thinking about is that there are different levels of films out there. So Hollywood cinema is, you know, the main part of the entertainment industry and basically I would say 95 or maybe even 99% of the content that you're watching is also basically probably everything or nearly everything that is on the streaming platforms. It is rom-coms, it is action films, it is, you know, the films that get nominated for Oscars as well, like even like films that have a deeper meaning or maybe are autobiographical of things, they can still fall into Hollywood cinema because it is basically films that are, you know, produced for entertainment purposes or for making money or both. So they are, you know, made to generate profit. So that is most films, mostly. The um, second, you know, part of film, so <laughs> second level, whatever you want to call it, is art cinema and that usually refers to European art films. So basically films that are, you know, seen as art. So um, that doesn't mean that um, Hollywood films are an art <laughs> or in some form another art. That obviously depends on the viewer, like the one who like decide what is art, what isn't. Um, I think most people would agree that probably rom-coms or like maybe the Hallmark Channel movies that isn't like really an art film. Um, but obviously film art is something different than a European art film, but these films, you know, are, um, you know, seen more as an art form. They are also basically, you know, diving in. They can also be based, you know, on... They Obviously, all, most of these films are functioning in, like, a very capitalistic society, so there are, like, questions on, like, budgeting and production costs and stuff like that. So European art film, you know, is basically walking this line... Um, between, you know, Hollywood cinema. And then um, there is third cinema, which are films that completely put themselves against this system and against capitalistic and political ideology. These are political films. They are usually not produced in westernized countries. So one um, big movement, like where third cinema is kind of stemming from, is cinema, cinema Novu, which... Novu? Uh, I'm probably mispronouncing this terribly, um, but it's from South America, and that was also, I think, in the 60s, 70s, and that is where third cinema is kind of stemming from and that idea, but that are films that, once again, are political and that basically are also produced very cheaply. They're not about aesthetics, so they don't really, like, care about making it look pretty and good lighting and costume and casting. 
the most aesthetic and beautiful people from Hollywood, but they are about criticizing the system and um, raising awareness there. They can be like documentaries, but they can obviously also be like a fiction or something, but um, yeah, that's very interesting. So that is where that was stemming from. They don't necessarily have to come from South America, but that is where a lot of them are coming from. That is where Cinema Nova was coming from, which then third cinema was kind of developing out of it. And then there's another level, which is fourth cinema, which also is developing more in recent years, which is indigenous cinema. So films that are produced by indigenous community, which is also kind of like third cinema. So they are against the ideology and for the empowerment of their communities. They um, can also often feature as well as in third cinema post-colonial themes. Um, they can either address, you know, directly historic events, like for example, the exploitations of the natives, but once again, also just post-colonial themes. So something that is stemming from that exploitation. An example for that would, for example, be uh, the water war in Bolivia in 2000. I think that would be a post-colonial theme. So if you don't know what happened there, uh, basically the government, you know, raised the water taxes like so high, like privatized water. Um, privatization is a big thing in capitalism, you guys know. Um, and they basically also like took the water access away from the indigenous living in the country. And then because of that, indigenous communities were demonstrating against it. And these demonstrations were um, leading into a civil war where people also sadly died and were injured. So it was them rebelling against the government and the police. And the good thing is that it had a good outcome and the indigenous communities won this water war and against this privatization. But for example, if you'd make a film about um, the water war in Bolivia in 2000, that would be a post-colonial theme. Still, that doesn't mean just because you feature something like that, that uh, would automatically be third cinema, for example, or fourth. So fourth cinema, also here to note, third cinema can be produced, um, for example, I think also by people from Western countries. Um, but then for cinema, the difference is, is that this is actually, you know, produced by indigenous people, like by indigenous communities. And it's also about, you know, that message. And I think that cinema is once again more walking the line into being like, okay, there could technically be um, a white, like westernized person making that film. Not necessarily. I don't know exactly. You see very professional film student over here. But then indigenous family. Uh, indigenous families, no. Indigenous, um, like for cinema, indigenous cinema um, is then from basically indigenous communities for indigenous communities as well. Um, they all also often, uh, or like not often, um, that is me exaggerating, but they also have like their own... Um, channels like tv channels um they're developing which i think is really interesting i looked into that last year in my studies and you could also um if you're interested uh look it up i try to maybe find a link to something um where you can maybe see what kind of films they are that would fall into the categories but you could also look it up if you're interested uh, to get more of a deeper idea um but yeah, just me once again being um, a silly little film scholar trying to also show you different levels and how there are basically movements against 